All right, I have the green light to begin again. We are continuing on what we began, the first lecture. Uh, I looked at that, I was thinking of that first lecture really in providing a foundation for uh, the more specific, concrete material that we'll be thinking about uh, over these next two lectures. Basically, what I want to do in the second lecture is to, I want to call your attention to two themes that we find in Scripture that I think help to illuminate what it means to live in two kingdoms. I want to, so it's going to be very, uh, we're going to get into the biblical story. I mean, I talked about Scripture first. Uh, first lecture, but we didn't get very far into Genesis, so we're going we're gonna to spread out from here. The third lecture after lunch, there is where I want to get most concrete and actually uh, think about three concrete issues of, we might say, Christianity and culture that we'll try to look at from uh, a biblical two kingdoms perspective. Okay. I might begin by saying what what is it exactly we're doing here in this world? Why are we here? We have, we have this wonderful destiny set before us. Scripture describes this heavenly kingdom, this new heavens and new earth, this new Jerusalem, a lot of different images that are used to describe it as a place of blessedness, a place of rest, a place of feasting, a place of worship, a place of seeing our Lord Jesus face to face. But here we are. Uh, The Lord didn't just transport us there. Uh, Here we are in this world. Why are we here? What are we doing here? Well, we know we're not here to earn our salvation. We are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has come He has done everything necessary for our salvation. He's lived a perfect life. He has gone down to death for our sins and been raised up for our justification. He's exalted to the right hand where he lives and reigns. We rest in him. We know that he has done everything we need. So we're not here to earn our salvation. And that's a really important thing to know because a lot of people think we are here to do that. And that's certainly going to change the way that we live, the way we view a life in this world. Now, we also know, I think we should know as Christians, that we're not here to try to make this world our permanent home. That's not a reason why we're here. You see, if you think about how uh, Scripture speaks about us as the justified, as those who have been made right with God by the work of Christ... As the justified, we no longer belong to this present evil age. That's what Paul says in Galatians 1. Uh, We have been raised up and are seated with Christ in the heavens, as Paul says in Colossians 3. And we will join him in glory when he returns. Paul says in Philippians 3 that we are citizens of heaven And we're awaiting a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to transform our bodies of lowliness and make them like His body of glory. We have all these things that warn us. Don't think that 
what you see before you, that the world as we know it is our permanent home. That's not what we're doing here. We're not trying to make this world into heaven. So what are we doing here? Scripture tells us that we have work to do. Scripture calls us to activity. Scripture doesn't call us to sit around, sit on the couch, twiddle our thumbs, kill time. Scripture makes clear that God wants us to work. God wants us to engage in commerce. God wants us to make music. God wants us to have children. We don't all are not all called to do all of such things, but we're, we're called to be in this world and to be active in this world. And as we think about what exactly we are, uh, how we are to look at that, that work we're called to do, in light of the fact that it's not going to save us, in light of the fact that it's not going to turn this world into the heavenly kingdom, what picture does Scripture give us that helps us to understand what it is we're doing here? And I'd like to call your attention to two images that I think help us, give us the right perspective to begin answering that question of what we're doing here, how we understand the importance of our work. And the two images are that of sojourner and exile. And I'm picking up that language. Those terms are used in a lot of places in Scripture. They're, they're used, both of those words are used in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. It depends on what translation you're using. Sometimes the words are translated somewhat differently. But uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, etc. Now, you just think for a moment about that imagery. Why does Scripture call us sojourners and exiles? What, what does that communicate? Well, sojourner and exile don't mean exactly the same thing, but they both get at the idea that we're living somewhere other than where we really belong. We're living somewhere other than where our true home is. A sojourner is one who's wandering, wandering in a land that's not his homeland. An exile is someone who has been forced out of the place he really belongs and has to live for a time in another place, a place that he doesn't really call uh, his, uh, the place of his true and ultimate citizenship. Now, interestingly, though, these images of sojourner and exile, they communicate being away from home, but yet having something to do in the place where you're living. Scripture doesn't call us, in that sense, prisoners and inmates. Right? Not locked up in a cell where we really have nothing to do. Sojourners and exiles are actually involved in the places where they live, even though those places are not home where the heart really is. 
But there's more going on to the New Testament calling us sojourners and exiles and just kind of throwing out these images. Because you see, when Peter calls us sojourners and exiles, he wants us to think back to the Old Testament. He has something really concrete in mind. When he says sojourner, we're supposed to think back to Abraham. Because the book of Genesis calls Abraham and his, and his family, you know, Isaac and Jacob and their families, constantly is calling them sojourners. Abraham, is, Abraham was a sojourner. Peter is saying, you want to know how you're to live in this world? You need to know something about Abraham, the sojourner. How about exile? Well, that also is to call our mind back to the Old Testament because the Israelites uh, who were taken out of their land and taken to Babylon, they were exiles. When Peter says, you are exiles, he's saying, in order to understand your life in this world, you need to understand something about those Israelites in captivity, those Babylonian exiles. You need to understand about how they were called to live if you want to understand how you're called to live here and now. Now, as we'll also consider, how we're called to live is not identical in every way to how Abraham and the Babylonian exiles were called to live. But there are some really important things we need to learn uh, from their experience. And I suggest that the experience of Abraham as a sojourner, the experience of the Israelites in exile in Babylon were, in really important respects, a two-kingdoms experience. And that's what I want to focus upon as we uh, consider those two Old Testament uh, experiences of God's people. So let's begin by thinking about sojourning and thinking about the story of Abraham. Uh, I obviously... Uh, made some initial comments about Abraham in uh, the first lecture. And I'll be drawing on some of that as we move forward. Now, a sojourner, as I said a moment ago, is one who is living, wandering, traveling away from his true home. And I hope you can understand why that's true of Abraham. Probably the place in Scripture that helps us to understand that best is Hebrews 11. If you are familiar with Hebrews 11, you know it's the great great chapter of faith. You know, by faith, this person did this, and by faith, this other person did that. And Abraham gets a pretty long section in Hebrews 11. And there, the author of Hebrews says that Abraham, uh, he knew that the lands in which he was wandering... Uh, in which God had made promises, about which God had made promises to him, that that wasn't his true home. It wasn't his permanent home. That Abraham, even back then, was looking for a city with foundations. A city not built with human hands. A city whose architect and builder is God. Uh, Abraham was looking for an everlasting city. He, he knew that those lands of Canaan, the lands of Palestine, was not his true and ultimate home. Abraham was journeying. He was sojourning in a place other than where God had given him a lasting home. 
So, Abraham had a two kingdoms experience. Called to live in a place that he shared with other people. An earthly land that wasn't his alone. Um, but also lived as one who was citizen of a much greater kingdom. An everlasting kingdom. And we need to think about how he was called to live in this world. Now, if you think about Abraham, Abraham was born in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was raised a pagan. He worshipped idols. Abraham was born under the covenant with Noah. I think back to the first lecture for a moment. Right? He lived in this world. He enjoyed the benefits of this creation. We don't know what kind of work exactly Abraham did, but Abraham was born in, uh, under God's covenant with Noah. God gave a special call to Abraham. He promised him these special blessings of redemption, promised him the seed, a coming Messiah. Abraham believed. He was justified. We talked about that uh, as well. But you'll notice, if you think back to the Abraham story, and I'll be thinking about some specific examples, God didn't take Abraham out of this world. Abraham had to continue living amidst the pagans among whom he had lived before. Abraham journeyed to a different place, but uh, he continued to have to interact with the people of this world. And this is the dynamic that I would like you to reflect upon. Abraham, with his covenant that God made with him, was radically separated from this world in certain respects. He was given a hope that his pagan neighbors didn't have. He was given ways of worshiping God that his pagan neighbors didn't know. And yet, if you think back to those stories in in Genesis, Abraham was constantly interacting with these pagan neighbors. He wasn't withdrawing to form his own special neighborhood, his own special Abraham ghetto, where only those who knew the covenant promises that God had made lived among each other and had their own businesses and had their own governments and uh, had their own music. We find Abraham living and interacting with the world around them. You see, Abraham... God left Abraham to live under the covenant with Noah with his unbelieving neighbors. I want you to think about some of the stories that we find in Genesis that illustrate how involved Abraham continued to be even in the midst of the special relationship that God had made with him. In Genesis 14, we find that Abraham was a soldier Abraham joined a military alliance with a number of cities in, these, in the land of Canaan where he had come to sojourn. And they actually fought a war against an alliance of some of the other cities. This is when Lot, his nephew, was, was uh, taken prisoner. You know who one of the cities was that Abraham al- allied himself with? Sodom. Uh, Abraham actually was involved for a time with a military alliance with the city of Sodom. Um, so Abraham 
served as a soldier alongside pagan neighbors. You might fast forward a little bit to Genesis 20. Genesis 20 is, to me, uh, one of the more fascinating stories in the Old Testament. You may remember there that Abraham was going to journey to, uh, he was going to be living for a while in the city of Gerar, and there was a king there by the name of Abimelech, and Abraham was not sure how things were going to go in this city, so he told Sarah, his wife, to just say that you're my sister, so they don't kill me on your account, and perhaps this is, you remember how this worked out, it didn't work out so well for, for Abraham, Abimelech found out about this, and he, went, he goes and he confronts Abraham. So here, this is very interesting. Abraham, the man of God, has this legal confrontation with this pagan king. One of the things that's interesting is that the pagan king rebukes Abraham, the man of faith. That should instill a little humility in us, right? We Christians are not always... Sometimes we need to be rebuked by our pagan neighbors for things we do. But it's interesting that they actually, they actually settle their legal dispute. They, they, there's a, sort of a courtroom scene. There's a lot of legal stuff going on there, even though it's not presented overtly as a courtroom. But they have this confrontation, and Abimelech makes charges against Abraham, and Abraham in part defends himself. And there we find uh, Abraham, again, not withdrawing from this world, but actually engaging in the political and legal life of, a, uh, of the city in which he was living. And in Genesis 21, and then again in Genesis 26, Abraham and Isaac, they actually enter into a covenant with Abimelech, this king, this king whom Abraham had deceived. Uh, they enter into this covenant, which is a treaty, but it's the same Hebrew word that's used to describe the covenants that God makes with human beings, like with Noah or that God made with Abraham. Abraham is willing to enter into a political treaty with a pagan king to regulate their peaceful relations with one another. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. What else did Abraham do? Well, Abraham was also engaged in commerce with his pagan neighbors. A good illustration of this is the story in Genesis 23. After Sarah, Abraham's wife, died, he needed a place to bury her. And so he goes and he enters into negotiations with these Hittites uh, for this piece of property with this cave where he could actually bury. He would serve as a burial ground, a cemetery for his family. And they make a deal. They weigh out uh, the price these are, as I was presenting uh, the covenant with Noah last hour, I described the covenant with Noah as about ordinary activities, sort of the, the, the mundane activities of life, things that God has established in common among all human beings. He calls us along with our unbelieving neighbors to be engaged in these ordinary activities. And you see Abraham's doing exactly that. It doesn't get more ordinary than serving in the military, um, being involved in a legal dispute, um, uh, and, uh, doing politics, entering into political alliances, uh, making a business deal, buying a piece of property. This is the stuff of ordinary life. 
Abraham does it alongside his pagan neighbors. Uh, not something that he does sort of in his own little ghetto. And so, you see, Abraham, he has no permanent home here. Abraham knows that he is part of something much bigger. He has a home not built with hands, whose architect and builder is God, an everlasting heavenly hope. And yet he's in this world, and he's active in this world, and he's living peacefully as far as he can alongside his pagan neighbors. Okay, so think about that and kind of hold that uh, alongside you now for a moment. And I want to move on to think about this theme of exile. Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. And I suggested that this theme of exile takes us back to the Babylonian captivity. That's fast-forwarding almost 1,500 years in human history from Abraham. So let me try to catch you up in about 60 seconds between Abraham and the Babylonian exile. You remember that God brought Israel as a nation into covenant with him at Mount Sinai after bringing them out of Egypt, brought them into the promised land. This was, there was something different going on during this time in history. I want to suggest to you that there's a sense in which Israel living in the promised land under the law of Moses, in a certain way, they were not sojourners and exiles. They had their own home there in the land. They were not strangers in the land. That land was theirs. They were not to share it with pagan neighbors. Remember, Israel was actually supposed to expel the pagan neighbors from that land. Something different was going on for a period of time. What I suggest to you is that what Israel was supposed to be was a little picture of heaven. A people of God in a promised land with pagan idolaters cast away, a people wholly devoted to their God, a little picture of heaven on earth. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, God said to Israel, this isn't going to work. Right? You're going to disobey me. You're going to rebel against me. I'm going to kick you out of the land. So they, they, they actually knew ahead of time this wasn't going to work. Right? But for that, there, this was what Israel was supposed to be, a little picture of heaven on earth. But God kept his word. Israel did rebel. They rebelled again and again. He was long-suffering. But finally, God brings the Babylonians and casts Israel out of the land. The temple gets destroyed. The king gets deposed. And here you have these Israelites, these Jews, living in Babylon. And they don't know what to do. How are they supposed to live? They used to know how they were supposed to live when they were in the land. They had the law of Moses. But there's a lot in the law of Moses that doesn't really make sense if you're living in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. A lot of things you can't put into practice. What were they supposed to do? And you read, especially you read the book of Jeremiah, and you can see that there were different things people were saying to them 
about how they were supposed to live. And Jeremiah addressed this question. I'm going to make a few references to Jeremiah 29. If Again, if you're looking for a text of Scripture to have in front of you, uh, I'm going to spend uh, a couple minutes talking about Jeremiah 29 because Jeremiah 29 is a letter that Jeremiah sends to these exiles. You see, remember, Jeremiah himself never went into exile. Jeremiah was one of those who ended up staying in the land. The Babylonians left a, a small number in the land, and Jeremiah stayed with them. But he writes this letter to tell them how, what they were supposed to do now that they're in Babylon, now that they're in exile. Let me, let me give you a summary of what Jeremiah says, then we'll talk about it in in detail. Here's a summary of what Jeremiah said. Be like Abraham. Be faithful sojourners in a land that's not your own. Or to put it another way, this is my way. Live a good two kingdoms life. So let me explain why I say that. Jeremiah writes this letter to the exiles, and he says to them, build houses and live in them. Plant, this is verse 5, if you're looking at it. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He's saying, you know, settle down in Babylon. Uh, live normal lives there, doing normal, ordinary activities. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now think about that for a moment. What is Babylon? It's the greatest power, military, political power in the world of that day. It was ruled over by King Nebuchadnezzar who went around destroying other nations, the destroyer of Jerusalem, the burner, the one who burned down the temple in Jerusalem. That's Nebuchadnezzar. That's Babylon. Jeremiah says, pray for Babylon. Pray for its peace. For in its peace, in its prosperity, you are also going to prosper. He's telling these exiles, it's kind of like you're Abraham again. You're going to be sojourning in a land that is not really your own. It's not your permanent home. You're going to have to live alongside of pagan idolaters now. But you know what? You need to go and you need to... Don't stop working. Don't stop having families. Don't stop farming or building houses. Continue doing these things. And actually, as far as it lies within you, seek the peace of the place where you are. They may be pagans. They may have done some unjust things to you, but pray for them and seek their welfare. You see, another way we might think of this is even while God was doing that special work in the land of Palestine with his people Israel, he continued to sustain the broader world under the covenant with Noah. It continued to exist God continued to preserve human societies and he allowed these human societies 
to do a lot of impressive things. If you've gone to certain museums in the world, perhaps you've seen something of what the Babylonians accomplished. Architecture, art, literature, law. The Babylonians were an amazing people. God continued to preserve a place like Babylon under his covenant with Noah. And you see now Israel was there and needed to live alongside the Babylonians and share a lot of life in common with them. However... Jeremiah doesn't just say that. Jeremiah says, don't forget that you're citizens of two kingdoms. You need to participate in Babylon and its life for a time. But this is what he also says in verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This place being Jerusalem, the promised land. And so even as Jeremiah says, you got to settle down in Babylon. you got to make your home there. you got to pray for the welfare and seek the welfare of this city. Don't think it's your permanent home. You're supposed to seek Babylon's prosperity, but you're not supposed to turn Babylon into a new Jerusalem because I'm going to take you back to Jerusalem after 70 years. Plant your farms, build your houses, But there's a time coming when you're going to leave those and you're going to return to where your true home is. You see, there's a call to be dual citizens, a call to belong to one kingdom uh, as well as another, another where our true and uh, that is of, of, of dearer and more ultimate allegiance. Now, before we leave this, turn, this, uh, this theme of exile, think for a moment about Daniel. You might think, well, it would be helpful to see how Jeremiah's letter, in Jeremiah 29, you know, how was it actually lived out? How did these Babylonian exiles actually put it into practice? And it's wonderful that we have the book of Daniel to actually tell us how a godly Israelite actually did what Jeremiah describes. Now, Daniel was an extraordinary person. We're we're not all as smart and talented and brave as Daniel. But uh, just think about Daniel for a moment. We we know in Daniel 1 that he was educated. He got a a Babylonian higher education. He learned the language and literature of the Babylonians. And he entered into the Babylonian civil service. Later, he joined the Persian civil service after the Babylonian Empire fell and he, um, uh, he went to work for the, for the Persians. And he was such a loyal civil servant. You may remember this story. I think it's in Daniel 9 that when some enemies wanted to make trouble for Daniel, they couldn't find him guilty of breaking any of the laws. He was so faithful. Um, here's Daniel seeking the welfare, the peace of the city of Babylon where God had placed him. And yet... Did Daniel forget the promises of God that after 70 years he was going to return them to Jerusalem, to Judea? He didn't forget that. I like to think once in a while that if if there was any Jew who might not be all that excited about returning to the promised land, it might be Daniel. He probably had things pretty good. He had a few scary incidences, you know, getting thrown into a lion's den. 
But on the whole, he was, I mean, he was second in command. I mean, he, he lived, he must have lived in a palace. Uh, he had it good. He had, he had power. He had influence. But actually, it was Daniel, I think I was thinking of Daniel 7 earlier, Daniel 9. You read about Daniel getting on his knees and praying, Lord, 70 years are up. It's time to act. We need to go back. Daniel didn't forget where his true home was. He didn't forget what his true allegiance was. He served Babylon, served Persia as far as he could, uh, but he longed to go back to his true home. Well, I want to go back to the New Testament now and to think about ourselves as New Testament Christians, as sojourners and aliens, as Peter uh, calls us. Peter says to us, look back, look back to Abraham, look back to those exiles and learn something about the kind of life that you're called to live now. And you know, when you think about that, it's pretty illuminating, isn't it? Here we are living in lands that are not our permanent home. Is there any place in this world that Christians call, this is our own? Here is Christiana. Here is Christian city. Here is our place. No. Christians are called to live everywhere in this world, alongside of unbelievers, in places where we don't have political power, in places where we're not influential, but we're called to be everywhere in this world. And yet at the same time, God calls us to recognize that our true homeland is elsewhere, that our citizenship is in heaven, that, as Hebrews 12 says, that here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking the city that is to come. Here we are sojourning in exile, away from our true home, and yet called to live in many places in this world and to live productive lives here and now. At the same time, before I try to fill out a few more of these, of these things, I do want to be clear that we're not in identical position to Abraham or the Babylonian exiles. We have it a lot better. We have it a lot better not only because we know the fuller story, all right, that we know that we know in detail the story of Christ's coming and his death and resurrection and ascension. But one thing that we have that these Old Testament saints didn't have is we have this, this missionary call that we don't see, at least in the same way, uh, with Abraham or the Babylonian exiles. It's interesting that Abraham really wasn't called to evangelize his, his unbelieving neighbors. The Babylonian exiles weren't called to preach the gospel to the Babylonians, which isn't to say that they never did, but it wasn't exactly what their calling was. At least it's not highlighted in the Old Testament. But one of the great privileges that we have is that we are called to expand the church. We are called to call others into that redemptive kingdom uh, to which we belong. 
We don't read about Abraham trying to call his, the pagan Canaanites into his household, nor do we read about the exiles in Babylon calling the Babylonians into Israel. But that is our job uh, in the church. We have a missionary task that the Old Testament saints did not. Well, how did we get into this position that we are right now? What happened with the coming of Christ? Let me offer a few thoughts on that. In fulfillment to the promises made long ago to Abraham, in the fullness of time, as Paul says in Galatians 4, God sent forth his Son. And Jesus came, we know from the Gospels, proclaiming the kingdom. That was the heart of Jesus' message. He came proclaiming that the kingdom was near, that the kingdom had come. And this kingdom that Jesus proclaimed is called the kingdom of heaven. It is, it's a supernatural kingdom. It's a kingdom that was manifested by wonderful miracles, the blind seeing, uh, the lame walking, the dead being raised to life. It is a kingdom as Jesus said to Pilate, that is not of this world. It is a kingdom from another world, yet a kingdom being made known, a kingdom being revealed here in this present world. Well, this kingdom, this kingdom has been foreshadowed in the promises made to Abraham, the promises made to Israel. Now it was being revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. But Israel rejected their Savior. The old covenant people, the people of Israel, did not receive him as their Messiah. They handed him over to the Romans to be put to death. And God put an end to that old covenant, to that covenant at Sinai. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, God established a new covenant He refers to that new covenant on the night he was betrayed when he was instituting the Lord's Supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came and formed this new covenant to fulfill all those promises made to his people of old. And the Lord Jesus Christ built his church. Matthew 16, Jesus said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Now, I want to kind of tie these things together. Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom. Jesus also comes saying, I will build my church. As you read the gospel, say the gospel of Matthew, and you hear about this kingdom coming, and you hear about these miracles, you might ask yourself, Where is this kingdom supposed to be manifest in this world exactly? How am I to put into practice this sort of this Sermon on the Mount kind of life that Jesus calls me to? Matthew's gospel offers an answer to that question when Jesus says, I will build my church. Because he goes on to say, And to this church I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus preached the kingdom. Jesus showed the kingdom with those miracles he did. But it wasn't yet time to reveal the kingdom in its fullness. It wasn't yet time to reveal the new heavens and new earth. Because that's what the kingdom is ultimately about. 
But Jesus did say, I'm going to build my church and I'm going to give the keys of the kingdom to my church so that if you want to experience the life of the kingdom, if you want to experience the power of the kingdom, if you want to experience the blessings of this kingdom, you're going to find them in the church of Jesus Christ. It is the church that has the keys to unlock the kingdom, to bestow the blessed life of the kingdom here and and now. And what a wonderful thing the church is as we read the rest of the New Testament. It is a church that it has no political power. You ever think about that? Christ gave the keys of the kingdom. I think what we find later in the scriptures to flesh that out, he gives us the word of God. He gives us baptism, the Lord's Supper. These are the keys of the kingdom. These are things that open up the kingdom and show forth the power of the kingdom. But he didn't give the church the sword. He didn't give us an army. He didn't give us a plot of ground for our own. He didn't give us our own nation. But he gives the church, he arms the church with the word of God and sends his people out into every corner of the world to hold forth that word, to preach that word, to call people into the kingdom, to be a pilgrim people, a sojourning people, a people in exile, living in many places, living in many stations in life. Some of us are poor. Some of us are rich. Some of us are successful in the world's eyes. Some of us are not successful. Some of us are red. Some of us are yellow. Some are black. Some are white. We're a people who don't, We don't have an identity the way the world wants to slap an identity upon us. But we live everywhere in this world seeking to proclaim the gospel and to call people into Christ's kingdom. Well, I'm going to be, just to give you a preview, uh, in uh, the last lecture, I want to, I want to think about three things. I'm going to, I want to talk about the unique calling that the church has in this world, the church as a corporate body. I also want to think about the, the issue of, of work, of vocation. How do we think about our ordinary work in this world? And I also want to offer some reflections on politics, on Christian involvement in the political realm. Uh, but before we get there, uh, as I conclude this second lecture, I want to do so by setting forth Five characteristics of the church, of of believers here and now, living as sojourners and exiles. I'm not saying these are the only five characteristics. I think you could come up with a lot more. But I hope these five characteristics will, uh, will help to illuminate some of the things that I've been saying, helping us understand how we live as Abrahams here and now, how we live as Daniels here and now in those called to live peacefully and productively in a world, in a place that is not our true home. Here's the first of these characteristics that I would like to suggest uh, may help to illuminate our understanding of our place in this world. And that is this, is that we are called to active involvement in this world alongside unbelievers. We're not called to be forming our own 
Christian ghettos. In a sense, we do have a Christian ghetto. We call it the church. Um, but in a sense, that's the only Christian ghetto that we have. And the nice thing about our Christian ghetto is that everyone else is invited to join us in this Christian ghetto, and we, we call others into it. But we are called in, in our lives outside the church to be involved in the world broadly. As Abraham made treaties with pagan neighbors, as he made commercial deals, real estate deals with pagan neighbors, uh, as Daniel went into the civil service in Babylon, so are we called to be involved in the world broadly. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5 uh, tells us about something about church discipline. You may remember there, the, the church in Corinth had this very serious matter. They had uh, a very serious sexual sin that was happening in their church, and they hadn't been doing anything about it. And Paul calls them to exercise discipline, uh, to call this sinner to repentance and even to excommunicate him from the church if he would not repent. But as part of that discussion, Paul explains that what he's talking about, he's talking about this purity of the church, and he's saying, understand that uh, I'm talking about uh, disciplining those who are called Christians, who are called brothers, He's saying, I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying that you should leave the world. He's saying you shouldn't have idolaters and adulterers as members in good standing of your churches. But you know what? If you, Paul's saying, I'm not saying that you can't associate with idolaters and adulterers in this world. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. And Paul's saying, I'm not, I'm not saying that. It's interesting also that when Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 3, he commands work. He tells Christians to be industrious. Don't be lazy. You know, work for the bread that you eat. And he talks about that work is happening alongside unbelievers. He says, do this, he says, do this work. Walk properly before outsiders. Uh, make sure that, that these outsiders that you're working alongside don't think badly about the gospel because of, of, of how you're living. You see, there are a lot of these indications, just in Paul's letters, that he's not expecting Christians to be going off and forming their own ghettos, not just forming their own businesses and dealing only with each other. He assumes that you're going to be out in this world. You're going to be interacting with adulterers and idolaters at work. Uh, You're going to be living alongside of such people, uh, and uh, your calling is to live in a godly, excellent way, even in that setting. Okay, so that's one characteristic. We are to be actively involved in this world. We are to work and to be busy, to be industrious in this world, even as we live alongside unbelievers. Here's a second characteristic of our pilgriming, exilic life, uh, two kingdoms life uh, in this world. Uh, the, the, The second characteristic is that we are to submit to legitimate authority. Right? There's a certain submission that we are to render as believers to those who have authority, whether they're believers or not. And there are certainly a number of passages in the New Testament that I could refer you to uh, that you'd probably be familiar with, and Paul tells us to be submissive to those in governmental authority. 
God has established magistrates, civil magistrates in this world, and he calls us to be properly submissive to them, uh, to pay our taxes, to pay respect and honor uh, uh, to these people. Uh, in Ephes- think about Ephesians 5 and 6, for example, there are family structures in this world, um, a certain uh, authorities of, 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 of husbands, uh, of parents uh, that are to be honored. Paul even says if, if, if you're a slave, that you ought to render proper submission uh, to uh, your masters. That raises some, some, some challenging questions. But we have this broader idea that God has placed certain authority structures in this world, and we are to be properly submissive to them. Can't complain that, well, the mayor isn't a Christian, the governor isn't a Christian, the, uh, the president isn't a Christian. I don't know who your mayor is. I don't know who your governor is. I'm not making comments about them, but uh, uh, I do know who your president is. Uh, I'm not meaning to make comments about him. All I'm saying is uh, being a Christian is not a prerequisite for having authority. Uh, for us rendering proper allegiance, uh, proper uh, uh, obedience to them. But that leads me to a third, uh, a third characteristic of the godly life we are called to live as pilgrims and exiles here in this world, according to the New Testament. And that is that we are to be always critical thinkers. There can be some danger, I think, when we... If you hear the first two points that I've made, you know, we we need to be actively involved in the things of this world alongside unbelievers. We need to be properly submissive to those in authority. That we might think, well, we're just to be passive. You know, we're just to, we we just go along with whatever's there. You know, whatever they do at the workplace, I guess I do it. Whatever the laws of our, our state or our country are, I guess we just need to kind of go along with it. Well, that's, we need to be careful that that's not exactly uh, what the New Testament tells us. The New Testament tells us that we need to be constantly uh, on our guard against the deception and evil of this world. Even as we live among unbelievers, we need to strive not to be defiled by their sins. Even as we render proper submission to those in authority, we recognize that they have no... our, author, our Civil officials, our workplace, employers, have no ultimate authority over our conscience. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Or you think of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10. where He said, we don't, we don't use the weapons of this world Right? But we destroy arguments. We break down pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive. Right? In everything we do, whether it's doing our work in the secular uh, uh, workplace, whether it's submitting to our government officials in, within proper bounds, we are always seeking to be renewed, always seeking to think in a godly way and to render ultimate obedience to God. You see, we're not just called to be in this world, to be involved. We're called to pursue excellence in whatever 
opportunity, uh, whatever place God, God places us. And that means that though we need to learn from the world in certain ways, we also need, we also need to be willing to resist the evil and the untruth, the falsehood that is in this world. Okay, let me mention two more characteristics. The fourth characteristic that I would like to set before you is that as we live in this world as pilgrims and exiles, we should remember that our, our real goal is not a quest for power, but the exercise of loving service to our neighbor. I hope that as I say that, it rings true with what you've read in the scriptures. But I think it's something that we all need to be reminded of on a regular basis. And I say that about myself. I'm not just saying this about you. I think for all of us. We are not called for power and triumph in this world, but we're called for loving service to our neighbors. You might think for, uh, just to step back for a moment, how do our non-Christian neighbors know us? And I say us as a larger Christian community. Might just say the larger conservative Christian community. I take it we can, most people here would identify themselves with the conservative Christian community. when the world thinks of us as the first thing that comes to mind is they are a people who love. Or is it, and I'm afraid this is probably so often the case, that our non-Christian neighbors think of the conservative Christian community and they say, they want power. They're really good at being judgmental. They're really good at calling other people sinners. If that's the case, and I'm afraid it often is the case, what a tragedy it is that they don't know us by our love, first and foremost. Jesus calls us in Matthew 5 to love our enemies, Not just those who love us. Anyone can do that. Pagans can do that. But we're called to love our enemies. Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's actually our apparent enemy who is our neighbor. Paul tells us in Romans 13, Galatians 5, he actually explains how loving our neighbor is actually the fruit of our justification. Why have you been justified? Why have you been made right with God? Why has God loved you? so that we might in turn love our neighbor. He hasn't freed us from our sins in order to indulge the flesh, but he's freed us for service to one another. He's called us to be gentle and meek and patient and humble. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're called to be more eager to get the log out of our own eye than the speck out of our neighbor's eye. So this is the fourth point here we are Are we to be involved in the workplace, involved in the political realm? That's great. We'll talk more about those things after lunch. But we don't do it to get power. We do it that we might serve and to be a blessing uh, to our neighbors. 
May they know us as those who love them above all. Well, uh, the last point that I would like to make to close up this lecture is that as we live here as pilgrims, uh, as sojourners, as exiles, we are called to have a certain detachment from the things of this world, a certain longing for home. The idea of detachment is perhaps it, it can be misconstrued as somehow some kind of an indifference about the world. And I don't mean that. I hope I haven't communicated that at all. Uh, we have a real interest in the things of this world. We do want to love our neighbor and bless our neighbor and to see. We want to pray for the peace of Babylon or the peace of Omaha uh, as uh, whatever it is. And yet at the same time, we must have a sense of detachment because we ought not to have some kind of sense that the contemporary affairs of Omaha are of ultimate importance. To have a sense that there is something even more important than how the next election turns out. Something even more important than how real estate prices are in your community. Something of more importance than what the unemployment rate is. Not that those are unimportant. But you think, for example, of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. That's a nice way to put it. I'm sure Paul would be happy for me to tell him that it was a nice way to put it. We use the things of this world. We buy the things of this world, but we're not engrossed by them. We're not so all consumedly engrossed by them that we forget what is of greater importance than what we buy today, what we use today. And we can only really understand that when we remember what Paul says at the end of Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we are awaiting a Savior from there, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Or remember Hebrews 13, verse 14. Here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We belong to two kingdoms. And because we do, we should see ourselves as sojourners and exiles, actively involved, eager to seek the welfare of the place we live, praying for God's blessing upon the welfare of our city, and yet recognizing that it is not an enduring city. We have an enduring city. And uh, as we believe in Christ, as we join in the life of this church, as we participate in the mission of that church, we make that city known. And we know that that is where our ultimate hope is. That should engross us. Pray, we pray that God would indeed make us all consumedly passionate about the coming of that city and the proclamation of the gospel of Christ uh, here and now.